Now, in the interest of timeliness and the teaching, I'm going to divide 2 Peter chapter 2 into two parts. We'll take one part this morning, the first half, and then we'll take the second half next Sunday. It's a difficult passage overall. In fact, even as Jake was reading, and we had determined to open up services with with prayer and, and the word that we're going to be looking at, and I thought, what a what a passage to start that with, huh? <laughs> Destruction and condemnation and judgment, and it's it's a heavy passage, it is. So we recognize that right up front. It's difficult, but it is especially important in these days in which we're living. And I will say ahead of time, we don't read and study passages like this that we might become more judgmental but that our heart and our compassion as the compassion of the Lord in this world would grow deeper. And we would have more desire to share the grace of God and the love of Jesus with a lost and dying world. So with that in mind, once again, let's, let's go through this, listen to it through, and we'll take a look. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority." Father, bless the teaching of Your Word and give us understanding, Lord. And as I said before, I ask, Lord, would You give us compassion and a deep love, especially for those who don't know You in this, in this age. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, the political arena exploded once again this past week with the announcement of the retirement of Supreme Court Justice... Kennedy. If you haven't been paying attention to these things, Anthony Kennedy is resigning. He was nominated by President Reagan back in 1987, sworn in on February 18th of 1988. He has been considered the swing vote on the Supreme Court, low these many years. And as often as not, it's been said that lawyers are speaking more to him than anyone else on the bench. You know, whether they be to the right-leaning or to the left-leaning, they would speak to Anthony Kennedy, hoping hoping to swing him their direction and perhaps gain a 5-4 majority in their favor. Sometimes Kennedy would swing to the right. And other times he swung to the left. And I was thinking about this over the last week. Who is up to such a task of perfect judgment? 
Who is able to hear cases argued and know the exact right response? Well, I'll tell you, the Lord God declared through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 30, verse 20, your eyes will behold your teacher, your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right or to the left. Which is great for both Republicans and Democrats to hear. That it is the voice of the Lord that tells us which way to go, which way to turn. We don't need a swing vote judge. We need truth. Give me no other voice, no other judge, no other supreme justice but the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He's always right. And the problem is in this country coming up on the 4th of July that is so divided, people are no longer willing to look at what's good. And what's right and what's true. So we need a voice. We desperately need a voice in this country to speak to us saying, this is the way, walk in it. Whether you would turn to the right or to the left. And that voice is Jesus. So when you get uncomfortable, you get frustrated, you watch the news and and, and you see what's happening in our world and it just tenses you up, listen to the voice of Jesus. He will never steer you wrong. He's always right. He's always correct. He's the judge. Now, I want to get a running start in the passage this morning, so back up a little bit and listen again to some of what we looked at last week, beginning at verse 19 of chapter 1. We have the prophetic word more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. And as we saw last week, Jesus is that morning star, that light of day. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, Peter writes. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, and many will follow the sensuality, their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Now, hold right there and let's think about this. What Peter's saying is what you will face in this age is nothing new. That this went on in Israel. This has always gone on among God's people. Heresy arose in the ancient world. And false prophets moved among His people Israel. And so false teachers, Peter says, will arise in the church. Will move in the church. Will come up from among you. And so Peter comes along now, and and in this chapter, he begins with a broad stroke of what false teachers do and what their end will be. That's the beginning of this and why it is so serious. So as we begin, some quick notes here on false teachers and false teaching. And the first one is simply this, false teachers are devious. You might think that obvious. But the deviousness of false teaching is, as he said, in their secretly introducing destructive heresies. They don't walk in with a t-shirt that says, Good morning, I'm your false teacher today. (laughs) 
They don't wear it on their sleeve. No, the false teacher secretly introduces, the word indicates here, secretly is underhanding, underhanded intentions. The intention is to bring something in that, that the false teacher himself perhaps knows would not be readily accepted, so it needs to begin with one or two. Or quietly with this group over here. Or with at least some flowery language around it that will help it be accepted. Jude says in verse 4 of his little letter, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Why unnoticed? Well, partially, and we were talking about this at our shepherds meeting this week, partially because the shepherds don't do their job. Which is keeping watch over the fellowship. And teaching truth. And listening to truth and being sure that truth is taught. They creep in unnoticed. Not announcing again their deception. Man, be careful when someone comes along and elicits behind the scenes meetings. Especially when they're saying things like, don't let anybody know about this. This is just for special people, hand chosen. These are for, there's a select group because we know you're mature enough to handle what we're going to share at tonight's meeting. Or special teachings, anything that targets quietly, behind the scenes, people, any teaching that separates or divides. Because honestly, as we walk in the light as He is in the light, any teaching from the Word of God should be open to anybody. Any group should be willing to welcome in any person as we teach the truth of the Word of God. And so we don't divide and we don't separate And by the way, with this, watch out for the flatterer. Because the secret introduction of false teachings also comes along with flattery. As Paul wrote in Romans 16-17, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. And turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Flattering. You know what the word flattering is in the Greek? Eulogia. Eulogy. Eulogy. It's to laud with praises. Man, when someone is eulogizing you and you're still alive. (laughs) What's up with that? Why is this person buttering me up? Save it for my funeral, man. You know? It's, It's praise with an agenda. And it's the secret introduction. So the false teacher is devious. Secondly, false teaching destroys. He talks about destructive heresies. He talks about bringing swift destruction upon themselves. By the way, that word heresies can have the negative connotation. Well, in our language it does immediately. But in the Greek language, the word for heresies simply means following or sect. Or it could be schism. That's the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal of false teaching is not to enlighten as much as it is to destroy and to divide. And to undermine. By the way, sometimes the false teacher buys his own lies with everyone else and he himself or she herself is being destroyed. Because I remind you, that's what the devil does. That's his entire intent. Again, John 10.10, Jesus said, 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Now, if you knew someone was coming into your life for those three purposes, would you want to invite that? Who would? And yet that's all the enemy does. Steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. There's only one who has ever given life and only one who can then make that life abundant. And that's Jesus Christ. So we go to Him and we listen to His teaching and we look to the name as we sang of Jesus. Speak the name of Jesus. Worship the name of Jesus. Listen to the voice of Jesus. Because number three, false teachers deny. False teachers deny. False teachers are devious and false teaching is destructive. But number three, false teachers deny, he says, the master who bought them. This is important. Some of your translations may say the Lord who bought them. The word there is not kurios, Lord. The word is the word for master. It's an interesting word. It's despotes, where we get our word despot. The despot? (laughs) Interesting. The negative of that, again, that we tend to use in our language, when we think of a despot, we think of a tyrant. You know, fascism. The dictator. But in the Bible, this word despotes is either used neutrally, as in a master and a slave, how it's used a couple of times, but every time applied, of course, to God, it's positive. God is a despot. That is a supreme ruler, the supreme ruler, the only one, the absolute power. I love where the word is used by the early believers, Peter and John, having just been released from prison. They rush back to their fellow disciples, meeting there in a room together, and they tell them all that happened and how they spoke the name of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 24, it says, When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord, which does not speak of the kind of car they drove. (laughs) Unified in voice, they said, O Lord, O Despotes, it is You who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He is the despot. He is the grand authority, the great ruler. He is the master. Christ, the master. The absolute ruler. But they deny Him. Who are they? Note this, they deny Him who bought them. Which seems to indicate these are those that at least have played with Christianity. Those who have claimed to follow Jesus. Those who have at least presumed some sense of standing within the church. This is the master. By the way, different than any other false god, any false god or or, or false deity that's ever been proclaimed or or pagan god. No, our god, the one god, the, the true master, bought them at the highest price with his own precious blood. This is the master who sacrificed self for everybody else. No other... No other pagan god ever did that. No other following. Did did Muhammad sacrifice himself? Did Joseph Smith sacrifice himself? Actually, Joseph Smith was gunned down in a prison cell. Jesus Christ, the Master, died. He he bled to buy. to, To buy them. 
And you know, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6.20. And for those who follow after false teachings, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought with a price. Don't become slaves of men. That takes on a new meaning for me when we think about false teachers. And Paul says, don't become slaves of men. Don't you follow after a man. Don't you follow after a man who's a true teacher. You follow after the Word of God. You listen to Jesus. You study His Word. And you listen and pay attention and obey only as what is taught aligns with the Word of God that's been given to us. And that's your responsibility. Mine, as I understand it, is to study and teach the Word. Yours is to test everything that's taught. And to be sure it is of Jesus. But the false teacher... The one who previously accepted this purchase price, whether genuinely or not, now denies the master purchaser. Why? Pride? The hunger for power? It all got in the way. And number four, false teachers, note this, draw on sensuality. He says that in verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Their sensuality, it's interesting that he describes them this way, but there is a lustful lure to these lurid lecturers. There's something in the false teacher that almost has, I mean, can I say it this way, a a sexual attraction? There's a a lure there that, that feeds the desires of flesh. Again, whether it be sexual or not, it is sensual. It is tantalizing. It does something to those who listen. Perhaps spins them up emotionally. Or or does something even physically that makes them go, Ooh, ooh, I like this, ooh. Paul wrote about it this way, 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, The time will come when they, speaking of our average people in church, will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Wanting to have their ears tickled. Man, scratching the ear feels good. You ever get that tickle in the inner ear and you can't get your finger far enough in there? And you just sit there wiggling it, you know, ah, ah, ah. It feels great. And that's the description he gives. It's kind of like when you have an itch in your eye and you go to rubbing it. And you're, the whole time you're rubbing your eyes, you're going, this is bad for my eyes, this is bad for my eyes. But it feels so good. I can't get this out of my ears. Ah. <laughs> and that is the description. There is something the false teacher does that makes the listener go, ooh, ah, I like this. Immediate satisfaction. And pleasure in the deception. Which is why, note this, he says, many will follow. Many will follow. That's disturbing. And that alerts to me this reality that just because someone attracts a following in the church does not mean that they are of God. Yeah, but all these people are showing up. All these people are turning out. There's a massive response. Man, be careful. Now, Billy Graham had massive responses, and he should have. He was preaching truth. So the truth is going to attract, but so will the lies. 
always be on the alert. In fact, my red flag goes up, or maybe just a little pink flag, but a flag goes up. When I see a massive immediate following, you have to ask, is this person on the up and up? Is this truth being taught? If it is, praise God. But if it's not, be on the alert. Because the false teacher also, number five, dishonors truth. Many will follow, but look, the way of the truth will be maligned. The way of the truth. The word maligned there is blasphemeo. So the way of the truth will be blasphemed. Blasphemy dishonors, reviles, or scorns the truth. Blasphemy has a tendency, though, to be used toward a person. Well, guess what? Truth is a person. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus says. So I fully believe, and I have this kind of circled in red in my Bible, that the way of the truth is Jesus. Because the false teacher maligns Jesus, His Lordship, His mastery, and His grace and salvation. That's what the false teacher does. Man, we are not just talking, by the way, about denominational differences. False teaching undermines and blasphemes the name of Jesus Christ. I will accept anyone of any denomination or any church that proclaims the Lordship of Jesus and accepts the truth of His Word. For me, that is the standard of fellowship. Does that fellowship preach Christ? The Christ of the Bible. Do they proclaim Jesus as Lord? You know what the Bible tells us? You can't proclaim Jesus as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You can't deny Him. Unless you're denying the Holy Spirit. And so the truth is Jesus. And where Jesus is magnified and lifted up and glorified, where Jesus is Lord, I'm going to accept there's truth there. And there are plenty of churches doing it plenty of other ways, ways that I might not choose to do things. But if they're magnifying Jesus as Lord, praise the Lord, they are honoring the truth. Brothers and sisters of mine, But number six, we also see that false teaching dupes for greed. It says in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. I like the King James translation of that. Maybe it's a little more graphic for us. It says, through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. And that's really what the language indicates. Why why does a teacher go false? Why does someone come up even through the ranks of the church and begin to spread lies and, and heresy? Why would they do it? Most don't begin with a desire to destroy. It's a pride. It, it's, it's beginning to take pride in, in their ability to teach. You know, in their, in their standing in a fellowship. Starting to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. I tell you what, one of the beautiful things about being in the Word of God is you realize moment by moment how foolish a person you are. It humbles you if you're truly in the Word and teaching the Word. There are a few things that are more humbling than going through passages of Scripture and realizing, what an idiot I am. I had no idea, you know. But the false teacher pride raises up and they begin to get hungry. 
And they dupe others because of this greed, this covetousness. They make merchandise of you, meaning they're either trying to establish more power, using you to get it, using me, or perhaps they want better position. The reality is the false teacher just can't resist the bennies. Eventually, like Balaam, that old false prophet back in the book of Numbers, false teachers want to turn a prophet. And they're looking for reward. They're looking for rewards of position, or recognition, or remuneration. And these are never the means or the end of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Reward and remuneration are never the means, nor are they the intended end of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that's all we're doing it for, we're missing something here. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.17, we are not like many peddling the Word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. And so truth is spoken in the sight of God with all accountability and with authenticity. And the desire is not just for the reward. Now the Bible talks about rewards. And we know there is a reward in heaven. And we know we're going to come before the Bema seat of Jesus. And rewards are going to be given. Jesus said so Himself. And there will be crowns and marvelous things. But I'll tell you what, the servant of Jesus Christ is not as focused on the crown as they are on the lost. It's not crowns, it's compassion. It's desire to see others saved. And to walk in the way of the truth. You know, for the servant of Jesus, Jesus is the reward. He's all you really want. The false teachers going after all of these other things. And so Peter continues in verse 3, their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. And that is a chilling statement. What that means is that the judgment of the false teacher is as certain as your salvation. Their destruction is as sure as as your salvation. As much as you know, having given your life to Jesus, that you are saved, the person that is undermining the truth and maligning the way of Jesus is condemned. We say, once saved, always saved. Once condemned, always condemned. Wait, what? What are you saying? Are you saying that they can't repent? I'm saying they won't repent. That's the issue. When this kind of condemnation is set, when someone enters in to this this standard of those who are marked out for judgment, and Jude's going to say the same thing, there are those who are marked out for judgment since the very beginning. Well, that's unsettling. That sounds like there are those who don't have a choice. No, they made a choice. And just like those who follow Jesus, from the very beginning, God has known what the choices would be. And knowing the choices, there are those who chose or who choose to rebel against God. They are marked out for judgment since the beginning. Because God knew exactly what they were going to choose, what they were going to do. And again, it's not a matter of not being able to repent. It's not wanting to. We've talked about how you get into the book of Revelation. You get to about halfway into the tribulation period and you see over and over they refused to repent. It's what I've called in the past the point of no repentance. Because there is a place in history, out ahead of us here, and there's a place in the human heart where a person gets to the point where they will never repent again. 
Now, don't start looking around you at family and friends and going, is it him? Is it that guy on my row? Those who refuse to repent, it's a hardened heart. It's a heart that becomes seared, the conscience seared. Unable to because they have chosen so not to. There's a German poet by the name of Friedrich von Logau in 1653. I have to look this stuff up. I know it's weird, but Longfellow did a translation of something this man said in 1870, and this is the translation. Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. Perhaps you've said it, heard it said this way, that the, the, the wheels of justice move slowly but grind thoroughly. And that's true with God. Who said all the way back in Deuteronomy 32-35, Vengeance is mine. And retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. Or as the Hebrew writer said, note this in Hebrews 10.26, If we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge His people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And i got to tell you, these are things I would not preach if I didn't have to. If it wasn't right in line with where we are in studying through the Scriptures, the judgment and the certainty of that judgment, these are things that, that, that are difficult to talk about. And even to bring up. I'm not a judgmental guy. I don't like to look for it and seek out fault in others. And yet we have to be made aware that the Lord is the one who said, Vengeance is mine. And it is, and it ought to be, a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Peter says, note this all the way back in verse 1, False prophets arose among the people, past tense, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will. Future tense. Peter is speaking future tense. Now commentators have studied Second Peter and tried to place it and tried to understand where it was coming from and tried to understand well, what are the heresies that he's talking about? What specifically? What's going on that, that Peter is addressing here? Peter is addressing the future. Now, there were heresies that rose up pretty early in the church. But Peter is yet addressing the future. He is writing prophetically. He is looking out ahead. This is a warning that goes right down the halls of 2,000 years of church history. For every age of the church, for every season at least in this age, that we might be alert that there are those false teachers who rise up. Jesus did that. Spoke prophetically of these things. Matthew 24, verse 4. See to it that no one misleads you. 
For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. It says in Matthew 24.10, At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And in my understanding of Matthew 24, all of those prophetic verses are before the tribulation, which will be a time of even greater deception. Jesus spoke into this age. Peter prophesied into this age. Paul did the same thing, warning of this age, that in this 2,000 year period of time, in this church history as we call it, or church age, the age of grace, there would be those who malign the way of the truth. There would be plenty who rise up and begin to speak lies and deception. And Jesus is describing this time between His first and His second coming, just as Peter is. Now, with that understood, here's the good news. God is absolutely faithful to His Word. Faithful to His Word. What He says He does. His follow-through is absolute. Faithful is He who calls you, and He will also bring it to pass. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 If we are faithless, which we often are... He remains faithful for He cannot deny Himself. 2 Timothy 2.13 Now there's a positive and a negative connotation to that. If God is faithful for He cannot deny Himself, that means while where He says He will save, He will save. Where He says he He will condemn, He must condemn. Because He's faithful. That's the flip side of God's faithfulness. We love to sing, Great is Thy faithfulness. Oh God, my Father. I love to sing that song. And to think about how faithful He is and carries us through and brings us, you know, through this season into the, through the difficult times, He's gonna follow through. He's gonna get us home. God is faithful. But while He is faithful to fulfill all of His promises of salvation, He must also be faithful to His word of damnation. And I tried to find another word. Because I don't like that word. You know, condemnation doesn't go far enough. I I looked. I went to thesauruses. I looked for a word that expressed the term damnation that would go as far as that word goes. And I couldn't find one. So I have to use it. I'm not a fire and brimstone preacher. I just need you to know that. I would really much rather tell a joke than talk about what we're talking about this morning. But love demands that truth be told. And love demands that warning be given, which is why this entire passage is here. In fact, it's why Peter wrote the letter. Because he loves too much to let it go. He's got to stir up by way of reminder. As he is approaching his own death, as he's at the end of his race, to say all to all those who are coming after, listen, there is a way of truth. Follow the Lord. Listen to Jesus because there will come false teachers. And so now he goes on to describe the faithfulness of God and how God's going to follow through both with salvation and damnation. He will even follow through the final destruction of those who themselves destroy. Verses 4 through 10 is one sentence. One long sentence in which he gives four if clauses leading to a single then conclusion. It's the if and then of 2 Peter. 
Now I'm going to combine them just into two ifs and one then, so follow this with me. If number one, if number one has to do with angels and the antediluvian world of Noah. Antediluvian simply means before the flood. The pre-flood world. Look at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Okay, hold it. Let's stay with this if for a minute. Peter combines here in these two verses rebellious angels with the sin-saturated pre-flood world. He puts them together in kind of one-if statement. God did not spare the angels or the ancient world. These two things. And he is talking specifically about the times between, roughly, really between Enoch and Noah. Talking about Enoch and the seventh generation of Adam, who was a prophet, as Jude will illuminate for us when we get there. Enoch the prophet, who named his son Methuselah, which means in his death it will come. And Methuselah died and the flood came. So this prophet, roughly 300 or so years before the flood, begins to prophesy of what's coming. Already wickedness had cropped up in the world in a very short amount of time from Adam forward. Seven generations in. And so Enoch is prophesying and it comes all the way up to Noah who himself was a prophet. So from the seventh generation of Adam to the tenth generation from Adam, all of this was going on early on and things had gotten really bad. Listen to Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Genesis 6, 1. It came about... And I'll go ahead and start reading because Genesis is so easy to find. I know you'll be there just like that. <laughs> By the way, how many of you have Bibles? Can I just see? Can you see a show of Bibles? Praise God. I'm so, I'm so thankful to say. I don't ask that very often anymore, but I expect it. I'm so glad your Bibles are with you. <laughs> Have them in your laps. Have them open. Be in the Word. You test what you hear me saying. Don't ever accept it just at face value, especially this face. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, said it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves. The word wives there is Isha, which is just women. They took women to themselves, whomever they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. And it would be 120 years until the flood. And after the flood, that would be roughly the lifespan of humanity, of individual people. But then verse 4, And the Nephilim, or giants, were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. What does that mean? What in the world does the Bible refer to here? I don't know, I wasn't there. But we can make some educated guesses. And I think Peter 
does this as he's combining the rebellious angels and the sin-saturated pre-flood world. He's bringing this together, angels in the ancient world. Why is he saying they're one big if together? He's tapping into both heavenly rebellion and historical rebellion. And stating some extreme consequences for both. Now I'll tell you this much, the old rabbis in Jewish tradition has long taught that the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, which is the phrase, Bene Elohim, and only and always refers to angels. That the sons of God were in fact angels who in the days before the flood came down taking on human form and cohabitated with women and had offspring. Now for some, that's a little cage rattling. It's a little bizarre. It sounds like something out of Harry Potter, you know. How does this happen? And they had offspring, sons, children, men of old, Hagrid, you know. People who, strange, different people were being born in this time. Peter seems to confirm that. As he draws these two together, he he seemed to imply as much even in the first letter. That there was something bizarre that took place at that time that, that messed up the bloodline of humanity. That there were fallen angels with daughters. And I think I know what you're thinking. It's what I think. How can an angel get together with a woman and, and, and have offspring? Well, we see angels taking on human appearance. We see them sitting down to a meal. I don't know how that works. But there's something that's being described there. And you just got to think that one through yourself. I'm not going to confirm it one way or the other. But get this. He describes what Peter describes back in Second Peter is the punishing confinement of these fallen angels with two words. Two words that he uses. He cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness. Well, you need to understand the word hell there is not the same word hell that Jesus uses. In fact, the word for hell is the only time this word is used in the entire Bible. It is tataro'o. Which should make you say, oh oh <laughs> It's only used here in the New Testament. It's Tartarus. And Tartarus is that from from Greek mythology, and it's interesting, Peter grabs a word out of Greek mythology and applies it here to to the word of truth. And he's doing it to paint a picture that his listeners in the church, in the Greek world, would comprehend what he's saying here, this idea of Tartarus. Now why does he use Tartarus if it's out of Greek mythology? Because, and it was understood, that Tartarus was the lowest subterranean abyss to which disobedient gods and people were cast. It was an abyss. Peter does not use the word hell because he's not talking about hell. He's talking about a place of holding. An abyss. And in fact, the next word that we see, we see pits of darkness. The word pits there is serais, and it means chains. An abyss where these fallen angels specifically are chained is what he's talking about. And listen again to how he says it. Reserved for judgment. He cast them into Tartarus, this abyss. He committed them to chains of darkness, reserved for judgment. We're not talking about the eternal hell that is spoken of elsewhere. The lake of fire referred to in Revelation 20. We're talking about a holding cell. 
specifically where these fallen angels are being kept, and it is a temporary holding cell. And we see it referred to in the book of Revelation, chapter 9, verses 1 through 11, speaks of the abuso, or the abyss, which is currently packed with a population of the most heinous of demons. And we'll talk about that when we get to Revelation 9, not long from now. Lord willing. Revelation 20 also refers to this. It says in verse 1, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss, the abuso, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. You know that Satan really isn't the king of hell. Right now he's loosed running around the earth. But when he goes to hell, he'll be there eternally. But there will be that time in the kingdom age where Satan himself is bound and chained in the abuso, in the abyss, chained up, and Peter uses this word Tartarus, and it is a holding cell. So what we're seeing here is that God did not let these fallen angels off the hook. He didn't let them roam free. They're being held in reserve for judgment to come. And that's the same application that Peter is now making for all false teachers. That God is holding them in reserve for judgment. Man, if if He did not spare them. And verse 6, if He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, that's if, number 2, Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of Lot, if He committed them to destruction by reducing them to ashes... Having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Sodom and Gomorrah. Where is Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, it's hard to find these days. Because there's nothing left. And I've actually, a couple of times in Israel, looked for it. Went uh, pre-tour with, with a guide several years ago. We went looking for Sodom and Gomorrah to try and find where is this location. And we went down to some desert areas down near and around the Dead Sea. And you can, you can get a general location because of some of the cities that are named at that time nearby that, that you can say, well, maybe around here, but the, there's nothing left. Completely wiped out. Hard to find. There was a, a statement so often attributed to Billy Graham, but it was actually his wife, Ruth, who gets the credit. She was reviewing a, a part of his manuscript for a book he wrote in 1965 called World of Flame, in which described the sinful conditions in America at that time. <laughs> and she came into her husband's study and laid the manuscript on his desk, and she said, if God doesn't come soon and bring judgment on the United States, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> If God did not spare angels and did not spare the rebellion of the ancient world, if God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, he says. And verse 7, if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, and and verse 8 tells us something about Lot we never would have known otherwise. For all of you who have asked, what was he doing in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, we find out exactly what he was doing. Verse 8, For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Why didn't Lot move? Well, why don't you? Why doesn't anybody move out of a horrible 
location or situation. Well, you get dug in, don't you? Sometimes you find that you're living, and I'm not talking about us here on you know, Glorious Woodby Island, of course, or Anacortes. I'm not talking about that, but some people get, get stuck in a, in a location. I've watched it happen in Southern California, where I grew up, south of L.A., when it was mostly orange groves and open fields and just beautiful, and, and my parents still live down, down there in Mission Viejo. Things have changed. And I say, why don't you get out of there? Why don't you move? Well, I mean, they've lived their whole lives there. Why would they leave? Lot had settled there. Abraham had taken another stretch of land. So Lot went here. Where am I supposed to go? But the whole time he's there, understand Lot was... Lot. Lot was a righteous man. He was a good guy. He had a heart for the Lord. He actually was a believer. And he was appalled at all the things that he saw going on and was terrified by it. Did he handle himself perfectly? Of course not. Neither do you, neither do I. But Lot is there and he is tormented. He lived downtown in Sin City. And we learn here that he ached over it. That it upset him. Ever felt tormented by the immorality of your culture? I do more and more see things going on, hear about things, witness things, and I just think, oh Lord, oh Lord, how long? How long until you come and make things right? By the way, Lot lived in Sin City, you got to understand that what happens in Sin City never stays in Sin City. That's a, you know, commercial for Las Vegas. Brothers and sisters, We laugh at the tongue-in-cheek joke. But it's a lie. What happens in Las Vegas never stays in Las Vegas. If you sin there, it's going to follow you home. When you go elsewhere to sin, and then creep back into your house, the sin is with you. It has not left you. You are deceiving yourself or being deceived. What happens in Sin City always finds its way to roost in the suburbs. Always makes its way into the home, infects the heart. And we think, ah, I can creep away and sin over there because that's not here. It's going to follow you home. Be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers 32-23 or Galatians 6-7 Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And we plant to the heart. And it's going to come from the heart. And Genesis 19.24 tells us, The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord, out of heaven, and He overthrew those cities and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. It wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah. Because what happens in Sin City doesn't stay in Sin City, it infects everything nearby. And so all of it was destroyed. And Lot suffered that. And of course, you know God got him out. But he was in the midst of this horror. And yet, wait. It's not all condemnation. It's not all damnation. Again, back in verse 5, he preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And verse 7, he rescued righteous Lot. God preserved Noah. 
He rescued righteous Lot just as, get this, just as God has and will preserve Israel. He preserved Noah. Just as He will rescue the church. It's an amazing picture here. Now let's just stew on it just for a second and come back to it. But here is the great then. If, 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 then, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the righteous or the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who indulge the flesh, flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. This is the faithfulness of God. He must follow through. He has proven Himself in the past to be faithful, so He will in the present and the future be faithful. Again, it's who He is. Now, note this. He rescued Noah. But He didn't get him out. He preserved him. But Noah went through the flood. Noah preached the truth. Nobody listened, and as the flood came, God shut the doors of the ark and set it afloat and preserved Noah through it just as He will with His people Israel. Zechariah 13, verse 8, It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God and he's talking about Israel. By the way, just a thought. I have often taught that Because of what this says, only a third of Israel will be saved in the days of tribulation. That could be wrong. He says two parts of the land will perish. But I will bring a third part through the fire. And that third part may very well be all Israel in those days of tribulation. All Israel who come to the Lord and gather together. And they are roughly a third of the population of the land. And the rest is wiped out. But I'm going to bring my people through. And Paul says in Romans 11.26, And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So he preserves Israel. Jesus says this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now I believe that has a twofold meaning in Matthew 24. This generation, that is the generation alive at the time that Israel is born again, born as a nation again, 1948. This generation will not pass away before all these things take place. But I've also shared with you that generation is the word genus, which could be a people. This generation, Israel, will not pass away. I'm going to preserve them. I will, like Noah, bring them through the flood. But note the difference with the other example that is righteous lot he got him out he got him out before judgment fell lot is a picture of the church and some might say how arrogant to call the church righteous the church is made righteous by the blood of jesus and not by our own and not by anything that we've done in and of ourselves Our righteousness comes of accepting the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ and His great sacrifices. So yes, Lot, righteous Lot, is a picture of the church. 
about whom Jesus said, Luke 21, 36, keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And Jesus said in Revelation 3.10, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing that which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Are you with me? Jesus got Lot out before the destruction. He's going to get his church out before the destruction. Before the tribulation, we will go home. It's called the rapture. Where Jesus catches up Those who trust in Him, I believe in this doctrine more now than I have in my entire life. And the more I study it, and the more I look at it, and the more I test it against other doctrines that are out there, the more absolutely sure I am of the literal interpretation of the Scriptures that teach this. Now Jesus puts it all together for us. Listen to this, Luke 17, 26. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. we got to stop there. And there's more to go. But listen. Just as the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation... So the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. But I want to end with four words for you to consider this morning. Four precious, potent, powerful, encouraging words. The Lord knows how. The Lord knows how. How will things ever be set right? The Lord knows how. How will there ever be peace on earth? The Lord knows how. How is my family going to get put back together? The Lord knows how. How will I ever get out of the mess that I have made for myself? The Lord knows how. How will darkness and evil ever be overcome? The Lord knows how. The Lord knows how. I don't. Trump's pick for the Supreme Court won't. But the Lord knows how. How are we to maintain truth and doctrinal purity in such a deceptive age? How do we stand against deception and lies and false teaching and false doctrine and not be known as the people who just condemn everybody? How can we share the love of Jesus Christ and the grace and the mercy of God in this age? How do we do this? Listen, don't be alarmed. Be alert. Don't be paranoid. Be prepared. Don't be fearful. Be faithful. Douglas Moo in his commentary wrote the following. He said, what we are advocating is not a heresy hunt. 
Becoming so ultra-sensitive to every fine nuance of expression that we read people out of the kingdom on the basis of the most subtle theological differences. Of this kind of unbiblical intolerance, we have tragic examples from the past. So how are we to live? Well, there was a darling church that Jesus loved deeply that was fierce in their opposition to false teaching. And he said in Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But this I have against you. He says, you've left your first love. This is the key, in my understanding, to discerning false teaching while maintaining truth and sound doctrine is we must always remember our first love, Jesus Christ. He is the love. He is the love of our lives. And as I look to Jesus, it is amazing the grace that comes into my own heart. It is amazing the tenderness and the mercy and the compassion. Even to the point where we see division and rather than just cutting off those who divide, we try to restore. We try to reconcile. We go to, we try to work with to the nth degree until there's no further that we can go. We maintain the truth. We walk in grace remembering our first love, Jesus Christ. He is the supreme judge. This is the way. Walk in it. Lord Jesus, we bow before You because You are King. You are God and You are Master. The one righteous dictator who deserves the title because You bought us with Your blood. You are the grace and the truth. And I pray, Lord Jesus, even as we hear this word, this challenging word this morning, that You would allow us to walk in grace and truth. Father, show us how to stand firm in our commitment to the truth while never compromising Your grace. May we be loving, gracious, merciful people who don't compromise. You can do this. You speak the Word. You tell us how to walk this out. We just pray that we would have ears to hear You. In Jesus' name. Amen.